old Puritan John Bunyan once said, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Let's pray. Lord, we come now to hear from heaven a word spoken by your spirit. Lord, we long to hear that living truth that can change our lives, not only producing in us a new birth, but a new way of life, a new way of thinking, of speaking, of acting. Lord, we know that the Word of God is powerful, and we pray that that power might be unleashed in every person who is here today. Lord, we're also thankful that we can call upon the author of the book, the Holy Spirit, to interpret, to apply, to, Lord, speak to us in the deep inner regions of our soul where no one else can reach. Cause us, Lord, to see Christ. We pray in his wonderful name. Amen. It was in December of 1912 that a meeting of the Geological Society of London was being held, and a man by the name of Charles Dawson made a presentation. He had found some fragments of a skull in a gravel pit called Piltdown in East Essex, London, England, or in England. Those fragments, he felt, were part of a, an amazing discovery. He was actually given the fragments about four years before this meeting, and he'd gone back repeatedly to that gravel pit, and with another friend of his, Arthur Smith Woodward, who was the director of the geological department of the British Museum, they began to dig. They found more fragments, and Dawson even found a jawbone. And at, the at that meeting, the presentation included a reconstruction of the jawbone and the skull fragments into one unified whole, presented as the Piltdown Man, the missing link between human beings and apes. It was interesting, Dawson made it abundantly clear that the skull was so uh, similar to a human skull in every way except it was only about two-thirds the size of the brain. And that was significant because in England at that time, the prevailing thought was that evolution began in the brain. And he said the jawbone was amazing because the jawbone was indistinguishable from a modern chimpanzee, except for a couple molars that were found in the jawbone. So the connection of the skull and the jawbone of man and ape showed this missing link. Now, there were some who questioned it, but it became such a powerful discovery that it changed science and religion. People thought, well, this must disprove the fact that God is creator. This must disprove the fact that the, the Bible is accurate and true. Therefore, I'm rejecting my faith. And for 40 years, it was the prevailing thought among many people in the scientific community until in 1953, it was proven to be a hoax. It was a forgery. It was intended to be a hoax. 
The reason why that jawbone looks so much like a young chimpanzee is because it was the jawbone of an orangutan. And the skull was a modern human skull. And they only had a few pieces, and they just put the rest of it together to make it look like what they thought it should look like. And cause the unsuspecting public to believe a lie. You think that kind of thing is going on in our day and in our time, not just in the scientific community, but in the educational community, political community, the religious community? I mean, so much so that we've become cynical, haven't we? We can hardly believe anything. And sometimes we read our Bible with the same cynicism, thinking that, how do I know all of this is true? And, and I'm not totally convinced that what I'm reading is reliable. And what if, what if? And doubt begins to fill our mind and erode our faith. To this, Peter says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. Our study in this wonderful book brings us to the end of chapter 1. And I suppose it would be good to do just a little bit of review so that we can see where we are in our study. Peter started out by saying that the precious faith that we have received yields abundant grace and peace. The precious faith, according to verse 1 and 2, comes through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The grace and peace come through a knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that God has placed in us, he has granted to us and placed in us everything we need to live a godly life. And to get all of that out of us, he has given to us, granted us, very great and exceeding precious promises. So that by the precious promises, we can become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world caused by lust. It's almost as though God deposited within us, as one would deposit a large amount of money into a bank, God de has deposited within us all that we need to live, live a godly life. The, the promises are like withdrawal slips. And as we write them, we withdraw from the wonderful riches that God has placed in us. And we live a godly life. Peter said the way to do that now is to add to your faith seven virtues. These seven, doing these seven things won't save you. They prove that you are really a saved person. And the benefits of having, adding these seven virtues, phenomenal. First of all, they will make you fruitful. Secondly, they will give you confidence. Thirdly, they will keep you from falling. And fourthly, they will give you a wonderful welcome into the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. Talk about benefits. So Peter says, remember, verse 12. Remember these things. I want to remind you of these things. And I know you know them, and you're even established in them, but it's a good thing to remember the first things. It's a good thing to be reminded about the core, crucial issues of our faith. So Peter says, I'm going to remind you. 
The Lord Jesus has told me that I'm going to die soon, Peter said. So with the time I have left, I'm going to do everything I can so that when I'm gone, you won't forget. And why is it so important to remember these things? Peter says, because they're true. They're true. What we have given to you is not something we have invented. This is no hoax. This is truth from God to man. And you would do well to pay attention to it. The fiction comes in chapter 2. That's the teaching of the false teachers. But what I'm giving to you is truth. We live in a world today that often says there is no true truth. There is no universal, objective, timeless truth for every man, for every woman, in every age, in every place. Everything is relative. Truth is shaped and molded, invented, colored, restricted by the environment in which is given. There is no true truth. And from such a philosophy comes abject despair. If nothing is really true, if nothing is really timeless, timeless, if there's nothing out there, then what is life? But God says there is truth. I am truth. True truth for every age, for every person, in every place. And I am giving to you my truth. That's why Peter says, I, I want to give you evidence that what we're saying, that what we're proclaiming is true truth. So here are two evidences that Peter brings to us. The first is personal witness or personal testimony. You've got the testimony of the Father and the testimony of the apostles. That's pretty great evidence. Look at verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That actually refers to the second coming. The first coming had power to it, but it was more filled with miracle and mystery. The second coming is going to be powerful and glorious. And that's what Peter's talking about, especially when we get to chapter 3. So we told you about the second coming of Christ, and we want you to know that's not, that's not based on fabricated fables. Cleverly invented myth. It's not a hoax. We're not trying to pull one over on you. When we talked about Jesus Christ and his second coming, we were eyewitnesses of the first coming. We saw when Jesus was here what the second coming was going to be like. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What do you mean, Peter? Well, verse 17, For he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him, with Jesus, on the sacred mountain. Now, we know this story that Peter's referring to as the story of the transfiguration of Christ, right? The Mount of Transfiguration. You can read about it in Matthew, 
You can read about it in Mark, or you can read about it in Luke. Matthew gives us one of the fullest explanations of what took place. They were in Caesarea Philippi, northeastern section of Israel. And from that city, Jesus took his disciples into a high mountain. You say, well, which mountain are we referring to? Peter calls it the sacred mountain in verse 18, but I think that simply means it was sacred to him. He doesn't tell us exactly what mountain. There are two that seem to fit the bill. The traditional site is Mount Tabor, near the home village of Jesus, the village of Nazareth. But I think a better site is Mount Hermon, which is up in that northeast region where they were when Jesus led them up into the high mountain, just weeks before his death. It was from that place that Jesus made the long trek all the way south to Jerusalem, and then we go into Passion Week and Jesus being crucified on Friday. So anyhow, into this high mountain go Peter, James, and John with Jesus, and the Bible tells us that Jesus was transfigured in their presence. The Greek word metamorpho, metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is a change in outward appearance that reflects the true inward heart. So when a moth becomes a butterfly, it's reflecting really on the outside what it truly is. Although for a long period of time, the outward appearance was somewhat deceiving. Jesus had been living, looking just like a man, like a Jew, with olive skin, wearing the same hair uh, and beard and everyone else of, of that day, fitting in. He was a true Jew. That was his physical outward appearance, but on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was metamorphosized. The inward character came out. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that he began to glow so white and bright that it was like the sun. His clothes were the whitest white you could ever imagine, whiter than any bleach could whiten them. There was this light emanating from him, and next to him, Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. These two representing the entire Old Testament. And Peter sees the three of them and says, hey, this is great. Let's build a little booth like the tabernacle of booths. Let's build one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. And a great cloud comes. And Peter's afraid. He's afraid of this scene. And from the cloud, a voice speaks. And what does it say? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That's what Matthew 17, verse 5 says. Now, Peter doesn't add on the last phrase, listen to him. He just repeats the first part of it. This is my son whom I love, in whom I'm well pleased. The voice comes from the majestic glory. It comes from a cloud. Have you ever heard of a speaking cloud before? Well, if you read the life of Moses, you might remember a cloud that spoke, right? It was called the Shekinah glory cloud. I think it was the cloud that led the Israelites through the Exodus, out of Egypt and into the promised land, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. Indeed, when Moses went up to Mount Sinai, a cloud came down on that mountain, and it was, it was an intimidating cloud, and it 
thundered, and there was lightning, and it spoke the Ten Commandments. I think what we have here in the Mount of Transfiguration is the same Shekinah glory cloud that came down to Moses, the same cloud that would fill the temple in the Old Testament, and it's the same speaking cloud, giving the truth of God. The Father is giving his own personal testimony to the Son. This is my Son. This is the one I love. Listen to what he has to say. Now, this is not the first time that you've got a cloud speaking or a voice from heaven. For when Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his ministry, the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God came down like a dove and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Did you know that that was a fulfillment of a prophecy made hundreds of years before by Isaiah? Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here's the promise of the coming servant. My servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And so when Jesus is baptized, people familiar with this prophecy might have made the connection. The Spirit of God is coming down. And the Father says, this is the one in whom I delight. Here he is, the fulfillment of Isaiah 42, verse 1. And so the testimony of the Father is abundantly clear that this is his Son. The transfiguration is an event. It's a, a historical event that gives to us rich Christian doctrine. Did you know that the rich doctrines of our faith are often based on historical events? The birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Christ, the transfiguration, the miracles, these are all things that actually took place. There's no myth involved. There's no invention of story. It's not a witty fable. This is what actually happened. Now, added to this is the personal testimony of the apostles. For they said, we were eyewitnesses, verse 16. We heard the voice, verse 18, the voice that came from the majestic glory, the cloud, that came from heaven. We heard what was said. Wouldn't you like to hear that voice speak? Someday you will in glory. It must have been a rich voice. It had to be a warm voice. It had to be an awesome voice. And it was a truthful voice. This is my son. He fulfills the prophecies. This is not invented by man. Now, the apostles are used to be eyewitnesses. The Old Testament says you find two or three witnesses who agree, and that's evidence, reliable evidence for any court of law. There were three apostles on that mountain, Peter, James, and John. And you've got the voice of the Father, reliable witnesses, telling us that what they heard and what they saw was true. We heard the voice. We saw the cloud. You can trust what we have to say. But Peter doesn't stop there. He says there's another testimony, and we'll call this the written testimony testimony of the Holy Scriptures. 
Verse 19 we read, and we have the word of the prophets, or literally the prophetic word. Prophecy is part of the Bible. It's not the whole Bible. But sometimes a part of the whole is used to describe the whole. And that's what's happening here. Both in verse 19 and later in verse 20, prophecy represents all of God's scripture, all of God's revelation. And we have a prophetic word made more certain. More certain than what? More certain than the testimony of man, even though there are apostles. Even more certain than a voice. Now, we're not questioning the source or reliability of the voice, but a voice is transient, can, heard be, can be heard only by a few. The written record is more permanent and can be read by many. We have something more certain. God condescends to our weakness and says, if the oral tradition is at times going to be questioned, let me give you an authoritative written account. Let me give you the inscripturated truth of God's word. It's more certain. And you do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. When the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now what about the nature of the written word of God, the scriptures? Well, look at verse 20. It tells us that the origination of the scriptures, the source, is not in man but in God. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Now, unfortunately, some people have taken this verse and they've really abused it. And in particular, the Roman Catholic Church uses this verse, had for years, I don't know if they still do, but they had for years used this verse to say, you shouldn't have the Bible yourself. Let the professionals tell you what it means. And so services in Latin and no Bible in their own language was not a problem. You came to church to hear what the word of God was. And then someone had the audacity by the name of William Tyndall to write the word of God, to translate the word of God into the English tongue of the day. And the church of that day burned him at the stake for doing it. Why? Because no scripture should be interpreted by an individual. Let the professionals do it. My friend, that is a misunderstanding of the verse. What it means is that no part of the prophecy is of man's invention. You say, how do you know that? Because the very next verse gives us a clearer understanding of it. For, connecting that verse with the previous, for prophecy never had its origin in man. It's not of man's invention, origin, beginning. It's not an imaginative story that man came up with, a fabrication. No, no. It never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, God was under no compulsion to reveal himself to man, but he did. That's grace. God was under no compulsion to send his son to die for sinners, but he did, and in so doing, revealed his love. That's mercy and grace. 
God was not forced to record his word in a book so that you, could, I, you and I could understand it. But again, condescending to our level, he did. And we have the holy word of God inscripturated in what we call the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. That is an amazing thing. To hear the voice of God coming out of the cloud would have been outstanding. But did you know that this is the voice of God as well? Just as amazing? Oh, I know, we'd like to hear something from heaven. But my friend, this book is the voice of God, and you get to hear it every day. So the origination of the book is in the impulse of God, in the heart of God, and secondly, the formation of the scriptures. That's God's work. The process by which we get this book. It's described in verse 21. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Interesting. Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Think of the process now. Revelation is God speaking to man. In the Old Testament, he spoke to his prophets, and they would proclaim it. Sometimes they would write it down. In the New Testament, he spoke to his apostles. They would proclaim it, and sometimes they wrote it down. God revealing men speaking. Now you've got the explanation of the Spirit carrying and men writing. That's the process of what we call inspiration. They were holy men because they were set apart for this unique work. They were not perfect men. They were instruments. And yet when the Spirit of God used these men, he did not override their personalities. He superintended the project. So that the end result was the perfect word of God. This word carried in verse 21 is the same Greek word that is used in Acts chapter 27. It's the word driven. Driven. Do you remember what happened in Acts 27? That's where the Apostle Paul is on his way to Rome. He's a prisoner. And the Bible tells us that he was shipwrecked and that the wind, used two times, verse 15, verse 17, the wind was driving the ship. Same Greek word. The wind was carrying the ship along in that context to a place where it didn't want to go. And so what you have here is that the Holy Spirit, the wind of God, is now carrying these men, driving these men into a place where they didn't even know they were going to go. Peter says in his first epistle, the prophets wrote some things they didn't even understand, but God was driving them. And yet in driving them, he did not neglect, he did not override or ignore their personalities, their experience, their gifts and abilities. So that the writings of Peter are uniquely Peter's. And the writings of John, you can see John in them, his gospels, his epistles, even the book of the Revelation. And Paul's writings are clearly Paul's writings and yet the end result is the perfect word of God, inscripturated for us, sufficient. 
It's what God wanted us to know about him and all we need to know to live a godly life. Isn't that amazing? The process was kind of described back in the book of Habakkuk. I love the prophet Habakkuk because he lived in a day in which there was a lot of wickedness and he knew the holy God, but he couldn't put the situation around him, couldn't harmonize that with the holy God above him. God is of a holy character, and yet bad things are happening to good people. How can that be? And so he waited in prayer for God to give him some truth. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, this is what we read. God said to Habakkuk, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that he who reads can run. Let me read that again. Write it down. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that he who reads can run can run. And then God gave Habakkuk a revelation, and it was written down and proclaimed. This is really what God wants to do with his word today. Write it down, make it plain, take it in, pass it on. And so God revealed his truth to men. That's revelation. And he had them write it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that it can be made plain and permanent and so that it can be clear and passed on to others it's not a voice that can be hold, heard only in a corner it is written down so that it can be proclaimed in every part of the world and that is the word of God he employed men to inscripturate his holy word God spoke it down men wrote it down it is the voice of God so that the book you and I hold in our hands called the Bible is God's Word. This is how He speaks to us. And when you read it every day, you ought to hear God speaking to you. And you ought to be able to write it down on paper. This is what God said to me from His Word. Here's the truth. God is speaking. It can be relied upon. This book is so amazing that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it can pierce to the very heart of your soul. We're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God that lives and abides forever. This is the voice of God. It is eternal. This is the voice of God. It is true. This is the voice of God to you. And it can be trusted. Peter says, I'm about ready to pass off the scene, but I want you to get this. So what do we do? By the way, did you notice the Trinity here? The Father speaking from heaven, the Son being glorified on the mount, His second coming being predicted, and the Holy Spirit carrying men along. You've got the voice, you've got the light, you've got the wind. So what do we do? Remember I told you that Peter didn't record those few words from the mount where God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Peter didn't use that little listen to him. Well, he really did. Look at verse 20. He said, we have the word, the prophetic word made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it. There it is. Listen to him. I mean, if this book is not the product of man, but comes from God, 
And God had men speak under the Spirit's power. And God had men write under the Spirit's supervision. So that what we have is the clear word of God. Thy word is truth. If this Bible is true, I think it's a good idea to pay attention to it, don't you? <laughs> I think you ought to read it every day. Don't you want to hear God speaking to you? I'd rather hear an audible voice. Sorry, he's chosen to do it this way. And one of the first things you need to learn as a Christian is that he is God and you are not. So I, I take this book and I read it every day. Why? Because man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from his mouth. How can I live on the words that proceed from the mouth of God? Live by this book. Very evident that you, most of you, are alive this morning. You've had enough bread. The question is, are you living? Are you living? I'm here, aren't I? I'm talking about the second part of that verse. You live by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. You will never experience life as the Creator wants you to know it. until you live every day on the words of God, guiding your path, comforting your soul, healing your wounds, giving you truth. Notice the nature of this book. Pay attention to it because it's like a light shining in a dark place. I don't have to tell you we live in a dark, wicked world. I mean, that is many of the philosophies of this world are very, very wicked. Not everything in the world is wicked. But the philosophies that dominate this world, most of them are wicked. Here's your light in a dark and dusty place. And how long should you read it? Well, until the day dawns, verse 19, and the morning star rises in your heart. What's the morning star? Well, the actual question is who? It's Jesus. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16, Jesus said, I am the root and offspring of David. I am the bright and morning star. You've got the brightness of the transfiguration in this reference to the morning star. We're to read this book until he comes. To take us to be with him. Until we see the truth. We are to live on this wonderful truth. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Either this book will keep me from sin, or sin will keep me from this book. Though the cover is worn and the pages are torn, and though places bear traces of tears, yet more precious than gold is this book, worn and old, that can shatter and scatter my fears. This book is my guide. It's a friend by my side. It will lighten and brighten my way. And each promise I find soothes and gladdens my mind as I read it and heed it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your truth.
in a world of invented fables and doctrines of demons and worldly philosophies that bring despair and condemnation, you have revealed your true gospel. It's in the person of your Son. It's been proclaimed from heaven. It's been recorded on earth, spoken by the Father, lived out by the Son, and applied by the Holy Spirit. O triune God, may we hear your voice today. May some hear the voice saying, Come, trust Christ. All your sins will be forgiven, and you'll have life that never ends. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For the rest of us this morning, Lord, who know you, may we hear the voice come, and may we understand that you've invited us to live every day to the hilt, a life full and rich and satisfying. That is the life that is blessed, the life of obedience to your word. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name.